All right, good morning. I'm going to end your light discussion, party conversation. Well, this morning we continue our series called uh, Mind the Gap. And the reason we've done this series for the last few weeks, uh, because of a phrase that I keep hearing uh, these days. All, aren't all religions the same? And if you've been with us for a few weeks, uh, you know that we, as we talk through these different world religions, uh, that you're hearing that they aren't. And now we've tried very hard not to uh, use the platform to a place of demonizing these other religions, and we would all agree that our biblical mandate is to love all people, no matter what their belief system, uh, to be kind to them. But we do want to make sure that we understand the gap, that there is a difference. And probably out of all the ones we could pick, this one has the most minefields um, in it, Catholicism. Let me show you. How many of you, by raise of hands, either were raised Catholic or your family raised Catholic? Raise your hand. We have like a sea of, the right? Right? And so... It makes it a touchy conversation. Let me say a couple of things I've, I've, I've realized, not just in this study, about, though, our faith and religion. Would you agree with me? Most people do not know fully what they believe. Most people, no matter what faith, have not done the reading of their holy book, cover to cover, and understand fully what their faiths are about, even Christians. Many in this room have never read their Bibles, maybe never read them cover to cover, and understand what they believe. And so hopefully this series has inspired us to know more, not only about our faith, but obviously about world religions, and hold on and be inspired by the great differences that I think offering, uh, that Jesus Christ offers in what we call Christianity. Now this morning, I want to hover around a concept that we're going to dialogue about guilt. I know none of you feel guilt about any of your life today. You're all 100%, I'm going to heaven, no problems, right? Uh, guilt kind of looks like uh, this, right? <laughs> Way too much piled on, right? Way too many things piled on your life. Um, guilt is largely a part of most world religions. It's a way we become subject to whatever traditions or, or religious practices that are laid out, and largely because we want to make right what we've done wrong. Joseph Stalin, in his tyrannical uh, leading, uh, and, and during that time period in our world history, uh, had an interesting ability to have people come in and confess uh, acts of crimes and criminal activity that they never done. And people had asked, how is it that he got people to confess to things that they never did? The rumor was that he had a psychologist with him that calls it the, uh, the Mongolian peasant principle. The principle the, the psychologist would describe goes like this. If I were to bring you, a peasant, into a grandeur-like office, 
just with a be beautiful, beyond what you've ever seen in your life, and out comes a gray-haired general, and in that, that room, you would be just overwhelmed where you were at, and he would open up a drawer and say, there's a million dollars in cash in this drawer. All you have to do is push that button. And again, this is the psychologist giving you the illustration. He, he said, basically, the, the peasant would look there and say, well, what happens if I push the button? He said, well, one, some, one person in Mongolia will die. Uh, they hadn't done anything wrong. They just will die. Your action will cause suffering for someone else. So the way the psychologist talks about it, eventually they will do it. They take the million dollars and they go home. The story goes, as they illustrate this, is the peasant would go home and never spend a dollar. Why? Overwhelmed with the reality of the guilt. So much that they say that, the psychologists say they'll, they eventually kill themselves and the cycle starts all over again. Now, what's he trying to illustrate? He said that what they would try to do, having someone come into the office, they would try to find the Mongolian that they murdered in their life. See, it just represented something that they had done. Sometime they had pushed that red button of something they did in their life. Couldn't we this morning say, there's one thing you've done in your life that you go, ah, gosh. It's, it's this principle that all of us carry at least one thing that we remember in our life. But probably the reality in this room is most people live with a lot of guilt, so much that it ends up debilitating them. A funny picture, but how many people today live in so much guilt that they keep trying and struggling? There's a war inside of your own soul that you know, you hear the promises of God, but you keep struggling and trying to make it work, and you just go, God, I could try harder, and I could do better, and i got to get rid of this guilt. See, guilt for us has an interesting driver for us. We would, we would rather have to pay something than get something for free, like be guilt-free. There's something wrapped in the idea of forgiveness that's overwhelming. I want this morning for us to, to just hold on to that guilt for a little bit. And I want you to think about, as we're going to talk about the, the, the gap between what it means to be Catholic and what it means to be Protestant. And again, this morning, my goal here is not to shame uh, Catholicism. In fact, if I were to say this morning, there are, I have a lot of friends that are Catholic that love Jesus dearly and, and will be in heaven, I guarantee it. But I would say that, as we said before, many people who grew up Catholic, maybe you attested to that this morning because I never grew up Catholic, First Catholic I met was in the Marine Corps at boot camp from this kid. I don't remember his name. I just said, who are you? He goes, I'm from Wisconsin. That's what he said. <laughs> I'm Catholic. And I thought, oh my gosh, where is Wisconsin and who are these Catholic people? Because um, I really never got exposed to that much in my growing up in, in the West. So many of you know more than me, but I think there are a lot of great things in the Catholic faith that I believe we've lost in some ways in, in mainline Protestant uh, practice. Can we say one would be a weightiness about the reverence of God? You know, if, if God were to come down on this stage and to present any aspect of himself, 
We'd be all laying down. We would all be broken. We'd be overwhelmed with his holiness. Sometimes we become so cavalier about services, communion, the weight of, of the, the, the communion. And I know in the Catholic Church it's called the Eucharist, and we'll talk about that, but the weight of that, and it can't be just so trite as just to get communion and then leave and walk out the door. I think, again, in Protestantism, I think we've got to recapture some of the sense of holiness and some of the sense of, of reverence and awe. I think a lot of liturgy carries some of that. And so my goal this morning isn't to, to demonize or to say who's right and who's wrong. I do want to paint a very clear picture of the gap. I want to do that in four basic areas. I want to talk about authority. Who has church authority and final authority? Uh, the, the idea of salvation, the idea of the Eucharist, and saints. And, I, and I'm going to touch on these in kind of a unique way about answering two basic questions. So if you kind of land... We're going to land in kind of uh, two passages this morning, but I want to give you a little bit of church history. So first, the birth of Christ, we could arguably say, is the beginning of the church, meaning we're going to see finally after, after the Old Testament, some of you have not read the Old Testament, is the struggle of priests and sacrifices and, and uh, the, the rituals and all those things, and God is going to end the end of the Old Testament with, with saying, it's not about all this. There's one sacrifice coming, and I want your hearts. I wanted this all to be about your hearts. And couldn't we just say this morning that in the Catholic faith, and I know this, that, that it's, it's, it's a group that longs for God. I think that's where we, we meet and we agree and we, we have a truth between us that's true. It's a longing to be close to God. And so the birth of the church is around Jesus Christ, and the Catholic Church would say the same. And then we have, obviously, this Jesus dies and resurrects the Holy Spirit, and he says, I'm going to leave you one that's greater than I, so that you could do works greater than I've done. The launch of the church, Acts. And we see the Holy Spirit empowering the church. Now what we find here is the first big gap in the separator. And I'll show you, it's in Matthew 16, we did this last week, remember Jesus takes this field trip. 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi, a pagan temple worship site. Not a lightweight one. They're sacrificing people in honor of the god Pan. And so Jesus takes them to this region and says, who do people say I am? And they give a reply. Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But remember the question we said last week, who do you say I am? That's the most important question. And so Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying to him, listen, you didn't come up with this on your own. You're not that smart. Uh, your track record isn't doing, and, and your track record coming is not going to be very good, right? Uh, my Father has revealed that to you. And he says this, and Jesus changes his name. This is where he first changes his name. It says, I, and I will tell you that you are Peter. Petros is the language the word comes out of. It means a piece or a small pebble rock. Why is he saying this to him? He changed their names, many of the disciples, and it's, 
I want you to be, no, you're no longer this wishy-washy person. You are, you, you have some stability, but it's not because of what you know. It's because of what my Father is giving you, and it's because of who I am. And then he goes on and says, and on this rock. Now, it's so interesting here. This is the amazing, amazing part of how Jesus teaches. Literally, the rock is this massive piece of stone with a sheer stone wall where this whole temple is carved out. I mean, so Jesus is using all these double meanings, and it's a very expressive and creative, and it's, it's hard to interpret because he's saying, and on this rock. Well, who is the rock? And now this is a different word, Petra, which means a massive rock. On this massive rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What rock will Jesus build his church on? You see, what happens here? is where the Catholic Church will say is that Jesus clearly is saying that the church will be on Peter and that Peter is the rock. The problem is the language doesn't describe it this way, that he's talking about a larger rock. Why would he call Peter a small rock and then a large rock? And that it is the claim of Jesus being the Messiah. Jesus himself is the rock. This is the huge separator. Now what happens is, is, as it goes on, Jesus will then say this to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Often when Jesus spoke, he spoke to a disciple or a couple disciples, but it was in reference to all the disciples, and we know, would be to the church. And so your, your separator here becomes is that the Catholic Church would believe that Jesus received the keys. He received the keys to the, what's called the magistrate or the papal authority of what we called last week, a couple weeks ago, this active progressive revelation. What does that mean? That God is telling the Pope and the magistrate on what should be bound and what should be loosed. What does that mean? What is right and what is wrong? And they've been given the power and authority as humans to hear divinely from God. That's the big separator. As a Protestant, now we've pronounced that different today. It sounds better than Protestant because really it's Protestant. It means because of the Reformation, we protested many things about the Catholic Church, but it was a protestant or protestants that believe that this call is on the claim of Christ being the sole authority. And so what you have here is this big split and watch what starts to happen is the Council of Nicaea then comes up with the canon of the Bible, the scripture. There are arguments that will happen that the Catholic Church will decide no there's other books that may not be as accurate called the Apocrypha that will go in there and so there's a separation there. Again, there is a great schism in 1054 where the Eastern and Western Orthodox churches separate out of the Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church. 1095, remember I said that every religion in the world has had its scars and its bumps and its bruisers, uh, and this is the act of terrorism. This is where under the name of Christ at sword point, confess the name of Christ or die. And, and it was a, a horrible part of that history. 
But as you see it then in the Great Reformation, where Martin Luther would hammer up 95 theses, 95 protests about uh, indulgences, and indulgences were ways to pay for sins, and you could, you could cover that, and then we find out that they were, they were funding St. Peter's Basilica with this, and again, I'm not trying to give a black eye to this history, I'm saying that there were valid protesting to what Christians said, this is what the Bible says, and you had a magistrate and a papacy saying, no, this is the interpretation of this. Again, this morning, not to say that this is a right or wrong, but you have to see a big difference. That this morning, sola scriptura, which started to come out of the Reformation, which means the scriptures alone are the revelation of God. That we can trust no man, that we can trust no other person to be the sole authority, the key holder. What is Jesus saying when he says, upon this rock I'll build my church? We would say Petros is big rock. It means that on the claim that Jesus Christ is the sole authority of the church. Friends, this morning, I do not lead this church. I have a gift and a role of leadership that I've been given a place, but I'm not the priest. I, am, I play a role, as do our elders, as do our staff, and a multiplicity of gifts as we see in 1 Corinthians and we see in Ephesians and even parts of Galatians that God has orchestrated the body of Christ to be built as he is the head. And we are the body. And that's how, that's how this separation began to unfold. And this morning, it's, it's for you to believe how you need to, but you have to wrestle with this passage. We see then another even split that happens later on with the Anglican church. So who has the authority for the church? I mean, where does the church get any of its authority? And that's when you hear from our church and other what we call Protestant churches, it's got to be in the Bible. Sometimes you get tired of hearing that, right? Well, we're a Bible-believing church. Well, that is why that claim is made, because this is the authority. And the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit will come into our lives and give us clarity on what this says. And so you could arguably say, well, I believe that the keys were given to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and then it was popes and, and, and now a magistrate. And if you believe that, then what they write, when they write catechism and they write the Vatican I and II, that all becomes an equal part of authority, an authoritative voice, right, in what is right, what's bound, and what's loosed, and what's right and wrong. In uh, part of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says this, Simon Peter holds the first place in the College of the Twelve. Jesus entrusted a unique mission to him. Through a revelation from the Father, he had confessed, and we just read that. It says, you are Peter on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. Christ, the living stone, thus assures the church, built on Peter, of victory over powers of death. Because of the faith he confessed, Peter will remain the unshakable, read this, the unshakable rock of the church. His mission will be to keep this faith from every lapse and to strengthen it, um, strengthen his brothers in it. So in, in, in the Catholic writings, it would believe that, Je that Jesus gave him the keys at that moment, and he was empowered as the first pope. Let's read in verse 21. So right after this, they're walking back, and it says, From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, He must go. 
to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of his elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. He's giving the disciples, here's what's going to happen. Peter looks at him and says, hey, come here for a minute. <laughs> i got to talk to you. Only as Peter can do, right? He says, never, Lord. He shouts at him. This shall never happen to you. Look what Jesus says to him, verses after he's gotten the keys. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Get, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. For those of us who are Protestants would read this as, is this making Peter Satan? No. Jesus fully recognizes the human uh, struggle and the, the nature of who Peter really is. Did he empower him as an, an apostle? Absolutely. Did he think all of his disciples were that? Yes. But did he give him some supreme and some authoritative role to the keys of the church? We would say no, clearly. Peter's just like you and me. Peter's no different than you and I. Verses after this great calling, this is what unfolds. As Protestants, Colossians 2 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. We would say, when I say we would say, Protestant would say, if that's the, the, the faith stream, that would be sola scriptura, which means sola fide, which means uh, faith alone, sola, uh, I can't remember the other one. What is it, Bobby? Uh, it's all Latin, and so it's all Latin to me instead of Greek. Sola fide by faith alone, sola scriptura, solus Christos is Christ alone, sola gratia, that's what it is, by grace alone, and solia de gloria, glory to God alone. That Christ is the head. And that's when you say that we talk about Jesus leads this church. And I know people are going to come and go from our church and disagree with certain things, but you got to hear in our flawed expression of it, Jesus Christ is the head. And then it says that he picks some pastors and teachers and overseers, which are elders, and uh, some with evangelism and all the different gifts, and he just he portions us together as an expression of the bride of Christ. 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So a Protestant would not see the Pope or the magistrate as giving authority over anything else, it is for us scripture. It is scripture. Now, as you see over the centuries, what's happened is there's been Vatican I and II and catechism. And, and I'd encourage you, if you are a, a, a devout Catholic, that you should read all the catechisms. And you should, not just because you checked the box and went to the class, but there are, there's quite a bit of changes that happen. Um, that, again, this active progressive revelation is changing. In fact, if you look throughout history, the Apocrypha itself has had debates about which books should be left in the Bible and out, and still today, a lot of Catholic theologians will debate which ones should be in and out. Again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but you should know that, that you are resting in that the fact that the keys have been given to a, a line of people that are supreme authority, not over Christ. The Eucharist now is an interesting one, and this is one that becomes very interesting here at Community Church because I've had many people come and say, we love Mass at your church. 
And I don't want to correct them, but probably as a good Catholic, you need to know we're not a mass. Why? Because we don't believe in transubstantiation. What is that? In Catechism, it says this, the Council of Trent, which was another council. These councils, by the way, could meet for years over centuries. Uh, summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread. It has always been the conviction of the Church of God that this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of bread uh, of the body and the whole substance of wine and the substance of blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly, properly called transubstantiation. So there's a belief, many of you know, that the priest will do the certain prayers and the orders, and they have to do that. You have to be a priest to do that. That it converts it to the real blood and body. And I'm here to tell you, that really is not a point of contention for me. No one could scientifically prove that. I, it doesn't, if you believe that, that is awesome. Where I struggle, and I won't get into the more of this, but there's an understanding that I have to take communion to continually get his grace. So the, 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 the posture for a, a Catholic faith would be is that I have to get communion. I have to get communion. And, and so they've changed the language over the years. It's not that he dies again, although many Catholics would say that. It's actually say it's a representation of his original death. And so that you can continually get that grace given to you, suggesting that grace needs to happen continually. That's, that's just a point you, you need to understand about that. Now, again, you see all of these splits are representative of all of these different issues from uh, baptism. What does baptism symbolize? Baptism for a Catholic church became a struggle because uh, infant death was high. And, and good people who loved God wanted to know, where, do, where does my baby go? And so the, the Pope and they had met with magistrates believed that, well, in the Old Testament it was circumcision. To be a part of the nation of Israel, you need to be circumcised. And so uh, what they said is then baptism replaces that now. And you can baptize your child into the saving grace of Christ. And I look at that as just a great expression of a parent's desire to say, we want to offer our child to you, God. We want them to follow you. But infant baptism doesn't mean anybody made a choice for anything apart from parents' a longing. Nowhere in the Scripture in the New Testament does it say this, but again, this would be active, progressive revelation that the, the magistrate said, no, that's what it's going to be. And that... All these divisions started to happen. So let me land on this point. How do we find grace in our lives? Because wouldn't you say, in, in, not just in the Catholic faith, but every religion in the world carries this level of guilt of, am I really doing enough? Couldn't we ask the question in this room, how many of you feel guilty that you don't follow God enough, Right? And some of you are feeling good that you're just raising the hand. I'm going to just get it out, right? Because it's part of us, and we almost feel better by, by being punished or being exposed a little bit. I think this is why many religions have power over people, because sure, I deserve this punishment. I deserve to, ha I should have to do something, because don't you feel horrible when you get something for free? I love doing a favor for somebody, 
and they'll go, now I owe you, right? Or I'm going to do this for you now. No, 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 I don't. But they can't take it. Oh, no, I, I could not take that from you. There's something built into us is this built-in guilt. So how do we find grace? In Catholicism, it says this. It says um, in one of the, the canons of justification, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified, that means that they're made right in God's eyes, is uh, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtaining the grace of justification that is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let that be anathema. That means cursed, cast out. He's, in other words, saying the catechism says this, is that in the Council of Trent, this happened this way, that it's not just faith alone in Christ. You have to actually do stuff. And this is where the Catholic Church bases a lot of its sacraments, right, around it's not just Jesus and believing in him. There has to be a cooperation that you have to begin to do something and then you have to begin to actually have good merit and will. And you know many of you that have grown up Catholic that you could be a great Catholic but then commit a sin right before you die, right? And if you get it wrong, uh, I'm sorry. And that, that is how that's structured. If anyone says that a man is truly absolved from his sins, and justified because he surely believed himself absolved or justified, that no one is truly justified, but he who believes himself justified, and that by his faith alone, absolution and justification are affected. They're saying here it can't just be through belief. You can't just believe in the name of Jesus. You know what it's saying here? Could I just paraphrase this? You don't get this for free. Uh, this is the huge division. You do not get this for free. If anyone says that by faith alone, I could keep going through these, so it goes through about faith alone. Remember I said sola scriptura, sola gratia, by grace alone, by faith alone, sola scriptura. All these are, are movements that split the church to saying, no, it is alone by this. And that was really the debate in the Council of of Trent and a lot of the Reformation was around. We all believe it's Jesus, Catholic and Protestant. It's all about Jesus, but it's Jesus either nothing, plus nothing, which is Protestant, or Jesus plus something else. Hebrews 7 is where I want to land this morning. And this is a mouthful, and the whole chapter of Hebrews, it's the writer He's trying to help us understand how Jesus fits the role of priest. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, if you've not read it, is day after day after day of sacrifices, of sacrifices, of sacrifices for sins and trespasses of the 637 ways you could be out of of standing in right standing with God and you had to get it right and so you had to get back in line and it's the whole way of the Israelite tribe. And so the writer says, and what we have said is even more clear, another priest like Melchizedek. Melchizedek's in the Old Testament and is a priest king. And it is said that Jesus comes from that line of priest and king. One who's become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. It is said that Melchizedek never died. 
says that he was just taken by God, very obviously like Christ. But Christ died and, and has an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation now is set aside because it was weak and useless. He's making, uh, he's making a connection now to the Old Testament, to the old way. The way of you have guilt, you have a stain you need to go to the priest of the Levite priests and you need to bring a sacrifice and you need to bring this. And this happened over and over and you need to be made clean and right with God. But a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God, a better hope. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without oaths, but he became a priest with an oath. And when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, here's where we get into the the heavy stuff, Jesus has become the guarantee, the guarantor. He is the one that fulfills. It's not partial. Some of you this morning when you said, what's the percentage of you knowing you go to heaven? For you this morning, if you said anything less than 100%, Jesus gave you the assurance of 100%. The scripture makes it clear of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death preventing them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. And this is where a Protestant would separate again, saying, We don't need a priest to intercede. Look what it says. Therefore, he is able to save completely, not partially. Jesus is able to save completely all those who have good merit and cooperate with God. Does it say that? No. It says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, Jesus. Not through any other earthly authority. Because he always lives to, what? Intercede for them. Part of the Catholic Church is this idea that some have been venerated to sainthood and often it becomes you know, years after their life and they, were, and they died. And, and, you know, Mother Teresa, I think, was one of the latest. And what we find is you things like in catechism, you read about Mary. Mary was, she was made a saint uh, for her role uh, in Christ's birth and why we honor that. And we think that's amazing. But she, it says in catechism that she is left with no uh, mortal sin. She's been kind of exonerated of that, and it's removed. And so therefore, many of us, as we grew up with our parents, right, if, if you know your dad was the heavy hand, who did you ask to get something from your parents? I'm going to ask mom, right? Maybe it was reversed. And so many Catholics grow up with this idea of, well, saints have specific ways they can intercede. Ask St. Francis, right? He'll, he'll get you something. But boy, Mary holds a great place because she's like mom, right? And, and she could talk to son and father really easily and get them to do pretty much what you want. We have a way people start to pray to saints. But what does it say? Jesus is always there to intercede for them. Jesus is your intercessor. I'm doing one passage. It says this, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners exalted above the heavens, unlike other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. 
He doesn't have to do things to earn anything. First for his own sins and for then the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins how many times? Once. Once and for all when he offered himself. Ephesians 2. It says this, for us as Protestants. For it is by grace. It's the words char- charism or charism and it. It, it has some connection to this idea of, of Eucharisto, and it's, it means to, to have that gift of, of unmerited favor from God, a thankful spirit for that. It says it is by grace, this, this blessed and, and salvation we receive from God, that you have been saved. By grace you've been saved. Through faith, not of yourselves, no merit, It is the gift of God, not by works. There's got to be a reason why that's in the Bible. Why Paul writes this about, it's not about you working to unload the wagon of guilt so that no one can boast. There is no hierarchy of better or worse on our planet. There is basically, we are all 100% guaranteed hell without Jesus. All of us. It is by grace that you've been saved. Grace. Bobby's going to sing a song that I just, I love the lyrics. And I want to I read those to you, but I want to read those to you after I tell you this story about this week. This week, you know him. His name is Shannon Johnson. I don't know if you heard about him. He was one of the men in, the, in the, uh, the San Bernardino area that was in the room. And his, his girlfriend says that he was a, a gentle guy, an older guy, but loved and respected everyone, even the shooters. Before he obviously knew there were shooters, he had said, man, I want you to know I respect what you believe. I mean, it's, it says that he really honored them. But he knew another gal, Denise, in there that he was a workmate with, and when the gunman came in and began to shoot, he saw her and helped her get down to the floor and put his arms around her. And it says, and she quotes, I'll never forget what he did because he shielded her from bullets. And he said and he whispered in her ear, I got you. I I got you. She didn't get up and say, hey, wait a second, I got some money in my purse that I should probably give you if you're going to do this. You know what? I really don't want to receive this because I need to pay you back somehow. No, it was, it was him putting his arms around her, and I got you. I got you. See, I think grace this morning is overwhelming for us to handle. The idea that someone would give their life, not someone, but a God would give his life for you. How is it that we can't accept grace? A friend of mine in our church here, years ago, was talking about his unfaithfulness, and I remember him working through that process, but I remember he said to me, after months, and their marriage uh, did very well, but 
He said, I wasn't prepared for my wife to say I forgive you. He said, ah. It was, it was like a grace and a forgiveness that I felt like, no, 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 wait. I deserve, I deserve punishment. I deserve some guilt. Throw on something on the wagon so that I could just carry this and punish myself the while. And I remember him saying to me, and it was profound to me, I saw a picture of God. I saw grace. This song Bobby's going to sing, it says, there's a war in my flesh. And I can't turn off my thoughts. There's an ache for your promise. I think that's grace. But I can't see past all my faults. How many of you this morning have been living with guilt? Nowhere in Scripture does it offer for us a way to carry that guilt apart from Christ. We're to, we're to, to unload that wagon this morning. And it says, I can't see past all my faults. And the knowledge is there, but my heart seems lost in it all. How many of you this morning just need to hear that the God of the universe sends his son to just put his arm around you as the world is shooting, as evil is shooting to take you out and say, I got you. Grace, grace, grace. God in heaven as we think about even getting out of our seat this morning to receive the broken body representing your flesh torn and ripped apart for us and blood spilled on the cross for us, God, might we be reminded of the great grace that that sacrifice offers. Forgive us this morning, Father, for saying that that's not enough, that we need to carry guilt, because it says that your sacrifice was not enough. God, might we fully embrace, as we go to communion this morning, grace, grace, grace.